to the book of Colossians, chapter 1, Colossians chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 15 to 20 this morning, Colossians chapter 1. There was one announcement that we missed this morning, not because Rick missed it. Rick, you did a fine job. But we, uh, we had some technical difficulties, and we uh, had an announcement made by Matt Durkee. It was a wonderful video, technology-filled type of uh, announcement that didn't work. So instead you get this announcement. And the announcement was considering, uh, it was about the food bank. We had talked about it, what, two weeks ago that we brought it up? And last week was the first week we had the big blue bins, one out in the foyer here and one at the back doors that we come in. And uh, Matt came in this week and he collected it all and he weighed it just for fun. The food bank doesn't need us to do that, but he weighed it just for fun, just to see how much we got. And we collected in the first week 246 pounds of donation stuff, not just food, but uh, toiletries and things that we can give to the food bank. And the food bank was thrilled that we were able to donate that stuff. And in the video, if it was working, you would have seen Matt um, in front of all this stuff, and he was giving a charge to us saying, let's do more. 246 pounds is great. That's actually, I don't know if you saw it last week, there wasn't enough space in the bins to fit everything. It was wonderful. Let's do more. Matt sent in an email. He said, we got 246 pounds the first week. We're doing this for four weeks. Let's shoot for 1,000 pounds. Let's get 1,000 pounds of stuff that we can give to those in need. It it directly correlates with what we've been hearing uh, from the book of James. Put your money where your mouth is. Put your actions where you say your faith is. Care for those who need it. Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 15. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Would you bow your heads with me as we... Seek the Lord's guidance one more time. Father, we come before you this morning. Uh, So many people from so many different weeks that we've had, and we pray that you would speak to us through one text into our different lives, into our different situations, and you would speak to us. That you would use Paul in this short little section describing who Jesus is and what he has done, we pray that you would speak to our hearts through it. We pray that through it, that you would change us into the image of your Son, that as he reflects the image of the invisible God, that we would be changed into reflecting his image, that you would change our hearts, change our minds, change our attitudes, and help us to be more like Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. 
So this may go without saying, but I'm going to say it anyways. There is a ton of stuff in here. And I can't hit it all. There is a ton of stuff jam-packed into who is the son, what has he done, what is he doing, and I've got about 40 minutes. So what I did was, I found in this text three things that I want to highlight, three things that I want to bring out, and they're phrases that are in the text, and they're the in-him phrases. There were three of them that popped out. In verse 16, for in him all things were created. In verse 17, in him all things hold together. And in verse 19, in him all of God dwells. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. Now the in him phrases in the New Testament, Paul uses them a lot. If you go to the book of Ephesians chapter 1, Paul uses that phrase a lot. The in him phrases that Paul likes to use, they're everywhere. What has God done in Christ, in him? What is God doing for you in him? In these statements, we get a different picture. Not what has he done specifically for you, but what has he done before you even existed? That's the first one. In him, all things were created, which tells us that Jesus was not a created being. I was talking with our our small group Bible study guys on, on Tuesday And we were commenting and talking about um, how for some of us, myself in particular, I grew up in the church. My grandfather's a pastor, or was a pastor, and then he was a missionary. My great uncle was a pastor. My dad's a pastor. My uncle's a pastor. And now I'm a pastor. I have been surrounded by the church my whole life. And I have known for my entire life that Jesus, the Son of God, was not created. But some people don't know that. Some of us haven't thought that through. I just take it for granted because of how I was brought up. But have we stopped and thought about the fact that Jesus Christ, born in Bethlehem, we're coming up to Christmas, we just mentioned the Christmas banquet, he was not created. He was not something that came as an afterthought of God the Father. He was how God created all things. All things were created through him or by him. And at the end of verse 16, for him. All that exists, exists for the purpose of Jesus Christ. He was not a created being. Which tells us and helps us understand what he actually means by firstborn in verse 15. The firstborn over all creation. Some of us, when we think of firstborn, we we think of... Well, my status as firstborn in my father's family. I am the firstborn child. I came after my father and my mother. I was, in that sense, created by them. But firstborn here, as Paul has emphatically helped us understand by describing that the son is not created, he's telling us that firstborn is being used in a different sense. And firstborn is being used in an authority sense. Firstborn... It's talking about a title, not his actual physical status. It's talking about the title of the son, signifying the one who inherits the power and authority of his father. Which in that sense, the firstborn in our 21st century context knows nothing of the firstborn that Paul is talking about. I inherit no power or authority from my physical father. I'd like to think so, but I don't. 
I tried to hold that over my siblings when I was younger, but it didn't work because they recognized I had no authority. I have no supremacy over their lives whatsoever. I tried really, really hard, but it didn't work. The firstborn, the son, over all creation, not from within creation, because he wasn't created as a part of the rest of creation, not in creation, he is over creation. He has authority over every created thing. So as all things were created in him, he has authority over all of those things. Heaven, earth, visible, invisible, thrones, powers, rulers, authorities. Which if you think of those categories, heaven and earth, is there anything in between? Is there anything in between the visible and invisible? Thrones, powers, rulers, authorities. What Paul has done is he said, look, the Son has created everything. The Son has the authority of the Father to rule and be over everything. And then he, he, he tells us there's not one area of life that escapes his authority. Physical and spiritual. Physical things and spiritual things. And we think back into the Gospels, and here's another thing that I don't regret, but I wish I, I could learn how to reread the New Testament, reread the Gospels, reread fresh for the first time the stories of Jesus. Do you remember the story of the, the calming of the wind and the waves? The, the disciples are out in the boat and crazy storm going on. Jesus is praying and then he comes down off the mountain and then he walks on the water and Peter comes out. Peter sinks, go into the boat. Why didn't you have faith? Jesus calms the storm. Or the other account where they're in the boat and Jesus is sleeping and they wake up, Jesus, Jesus, aren't, aren't you afraid we're going to drown? And Jesus says, what are you worried about? And Jesus stands up, stands up and he says, peace, be still. And the wind and the waves and the rain and the storm and the rocking, it stops. And, and I've heard that for so many years that it almost doesn't shock me anymore. We, we can have terrible storms and we can, we can wish really hard, think really hard that it would just stop or that it wouldn't be as icy this morning or that it wouldn't be as cold as it could be, but we can't do anything about it. Jesus got up and spoke and the disciple says, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey? Jesus speaks and things happen. He has authority over the wind and the waves. He has authority over our physical body. There's countless stories of Jesus healing people who should have otherwise in other contexts gotten Jesus or made Jesus unclean. He actually makes them clean. He heals them. Both by touching, both by speaking, and both by distance. Like he doesn't even have to see the person. They're in another town. They're a couple of miles away. And he says, your servant is healed. And the servant becomes healed. He has authority over the physical body. And, and not just while the person is alive. He raises people from the dead. He has authority to say to Lazarus, come out. And death itself which we always say death has the final say. Death comes to everyone. But death does not have the final say. Jesus does. 
Because death did its work on Lazarus, and Jesus changed that. Jesus had authority over death. The physical things, physical world, the the atoms in space, the physical body, but also the spiritual. And this is something that we sometimes neglect, I think, um, in our context. Here in Canada, in North America, we tend to forget about the spiritual, the spiritual battle that the New Testament tells us is very real and exists within our hearts and within our lives right now. It's experienced in different ways across the world that we don't experience because we are blind and ignorant to it. Jesus met people who had evil spirits, demons within them, that nobody could bind, that nobody could keep in one place, that nobody could get rid of these evil spirits. Jesus shows up, and these evil spirits, these demons, know right away who Jesus is. And Jesus says, get out, be gone. And what nobody else could do, what nobody else could convince these evil spirits to do, Jesus speaks and it happens. He has authority over the spiritual because he created the spiritual. He created all things. He created things for himself, for his own purpose, for his own eternal glory. And authority over these things It's something that suits Jesus. You know the phrase, if the shoe fits? We use that in different contexts. And not wanting to sound irreverent, but the shoe of authority fits Jesus really well. There are some people that are put in positions, in places of authority, where you kind of roll your eyes and you go, really? Why did we put them there? They shouldn't be there. They don't know what they're doing. They don't have a handle on this. Jesus fits that shoe really well. Because it was designed for him. In him, all things were created. Things in heaven, things on earth, visible, invisible, thrones, powers, rulers, or authorities. Which is a reminder for us, as we come up to an election tomorrow, that whoever is elected, whatever party becomes the ruling power of Canada, they do not have the authority in this world. Jesus does. Are we willing to recognize and admit and submit to the authority of Jesus Christ over all things? In him, all things were created. And secondly, in him, all things hold together. Verse 17. Physical things, because he created all things. And he didn't just create all things and then, you know, kind of wind it up and let it go. He holds all things together. He sustains all things. And it's more than just atoms and space and gravity. It's true that we stay planted on planet Earth because of gravity, because Jesus says so. That is true. It's true that physics makes sense and engineers can do their jobs and architects can build things because Jesus says so and because he makes science work and he makes science make sense. But it's more than just that because Paul goes on to talk about the church. All things hold together, physically, yes, but the church holds together because of Jesus Christ, not because of anything else. He sustains the universe and he sustains believers. 
He sustains us as the children of God. He holds us together. Paul has specific things in mind when he's talking about the Son, Jesus Christ, holding the church together. Because in chapter 2, he brings something up. He actually brings up, he, he establishes the ground of who Jesus is and why we need to put our foundation on him in chapter 1. And in chapter 2, verse 6, So then, just as you received Jesus Christ as Lord, continue to live your lives rooted in him, precisely because of who he is and what he's done. And built up in him, there's that phrase again, in him, strengthened in the faith, as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. His specific warning is, don't, don't rely on other elemental spiritual forces. Rely on Christ. Rely on Christ as your sustaining factor as the church of Jesus Christ, not on anything else. He doesn't dismiss these powers, these these spiritual, elemental rulers. He doesn't just say they don't exist. Which is what I tend to do in my own head and as I'm talking to my three-year-old daughter and trying to comfort her. Do you you know the the song, um, the VeggieTales song? Anybody, you know VeggieTales, right? You know the song, um, God is Bigger Than the Boogeyman? He's bigger than Godzilla or the monsters on TV. And, and, and the, the whole idea behind that song is that there's no monsters in your closet, right? There's, there's nothing hiding in your closet. It's just a shadow. It's okay. We, we can actually go to God and we, we can remember that God is going to protect us. We don't have to worry about the little bouncing alien monster hopping into your pajamas. It, it's, it's not what you have to worry about. And that song came on, comes on quite often in my house, actually. Um, that song's come on a number of times, and as I've been reflecting on this passage, I've been trying to figure out how to teach my three-year-old that, no, there's not a monster in your closet. There's not a moose on your ceiling. I have no idea where she got that. There's not a moose on, on your top bunk. But that monsters are real. Not, not just, there are human monsters, there are people we need to warn our children about out in the real world, but there are spiritual monsters in this life. God is bigger than the boogeyman, yes. And we don't explain that by saying, because monsters don't exist. In fact, because monsters do exist, because these spiritual powers do exist, we need to be careful We need to be warned about them. We need to understand exactly who they are, who Satan is, prowling around like a roaring lion. We need to see and understand and recognize the enemy for who they are and then recognize that God is bigger than the boogeyman. The boogeyman, evil spirits, evil powers, evil authorities, They are real. And Jesus has authority over them all. The powers are not dismissed as myths. Remember the story of Moses and Aaron? They go to Pharaoh. And 
God gives Moses a sign. And what was that sign? When you go to Pharaoh, do this and something will happen. What was that sign? Does anybody remember? Staff, yeah, I heard. Throw down your staff and it will become a snake. And so he threw down his staff and it became a snake. And then the incredible thing is, which once again, one of the things I I just quickly run by as I'm reading the text, because I've read the text so many times, is that the Pharaoh's magicians throw down their staffs and do the same thing. And then the plague of blood in the river, we're told the, the magicians do the same thing. And then the plague of frogs, the magicians do the same thing. The magicians, the evil enchanters of Pharaoh in Egypt, do the same thing by some spiritual power and authority. Then what we get to is the plague of gnats. And then we're told, but the magicians of Pharaoh could not do that. And from then on, what we see is there are certain things, yes, these spiritual powers and authorities have empowered these magicians. They've given them some sort of power to do some things, but they can't do what God does. They might be able to do a little bit of these things because they are real, but they can't do what God does. God has the final say. We try to reproduce some of these things. And what Paul is telling the Colossian believers, these things exist. There are rulers, authorities, powers. There are things that exist, human and spiritual, that will sometimes give you some semblance of trust. Like maybe, maybe, well, look what they've done. Or look what I can do through this. Look what I can do if I put my trust, if I go to either this human, this spirit. What if I do this? Look at these things I can do. Paul is saying they are created by the Son. The Son has authority over all of those things. The Son holds all things together. And for you as the church of Jesus Christ, you are not held together by anything else than the foundation stone of Jesus Christ. Don't go to anything else. Don't don't go to anything else, as good as it may look sometimes. If it's not Jesus, it's not worth it because it doesn't work. He is the firstborn from the dead. See, this, this is a different phrase, different word that's being used. In verse 15, he is firstborn over all creation. Talking about his title, his status. Here, he is firstborn from among the dead. Jesus was put on a cross. He was crucified and he died and he spent three days in a tomb. And firstborn now, coming from the dead, what we're being told is, there's more to follow. There's more to follow, there's more to come, and... Jesus, having authority over all things, remember he has authority over death. He is the one who actually has the final say in death. In him all things were created. In him all things hold together. And in him, and I rephrased it a little bit just to stick with how I was writing things, okay? In him all things were created. In him all things hold together. And in him all of God dwells. 
verse 19. God was pleased, happy, excited, very, very satisfied to dwell in the person of Jesus Christ. To dwell, to tabernacle. It's where God meets with his people. Where a holy God meets with unholy people. God in the Old Testament came into the tabernacle and dwelt amongst his people. Put right in the middle and he dwelt amongst his people. Now what we're being told is God does dwell with his people, but in a different way. It's not in a place, it's in a person. God dwells with his people in the person of Jesus Christ. Which tells us that if you want to meet with God, you don't have to come here. If you want to meet with God, you don't have to make a pilgrimage. If you want to meet with God, you must meet with Jesus. Which, Jesus is always the answer, right? When I was in Sunday school growing up, my brother uh, became the kid that everybody turned to when the answer was Jesus because he always just answered Jesus. And he always answered Jesus because Jesus was always the answer. Like, how are we saved from our sins? Jesus. Who died on the cross for our sins? Jesus. What, what is the tabernacle pointing us towards? Jesus. Who is the sacrificial lamb? Jesus. Jesus, 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 Jesus. And okay, so Jesus is the answer, and Jesus is the answer to all of our questions and all of these things. He is how all of the Old Testament things are fulfilled, and he's how we now meet with God. So you must meet with Jesus. And meeting with Jesus is not merely an emotional experience. Meeting with Jesus is not just reading a verse of your Bible and going, oh yeah, that that sounds nice. I'll, I'll apply that to my life today. It's meeting with a person. It's meeting with an individual who knows your heart. We we don't count meeting with somebody, anybody else, as just thinking about them. I had a meeting with so and so. Well, how? Where did you do that? How did you do that? Well, I thought about them for about thirty seconds this morning when I got up. We don't categorize it that way. Meeting with a person is actually meeting with them. So what does it mean to meet with the creator of the entire universe? What does it mean to meet with the person who holds your life together, that holds the church together? What does it mean to actually meet with that individual? The Bible, that's the secondary answer, right? Jesus is always the right answer and the Bible usually is the second one if you get it wrong. Yes, we meet him here, but... What does it mean to meet with the person of Jesus Christ who shows us who is the image of the invisible God? You'll notice that I I, I had skipped over that in verse 15. The Son is the image of the invisible God. That kind of squishes together everything in this passage. God comes and dwells, dwells completely in the person of Jesus Christ, and the person of Jesus Christ shows us completely who God is. 
He is the image, not just a image or one of the images. He is the image. There's no other place you can go to actually see who the invisible God is. It's in Jesus himself. Adam and Eve were created after the image of God or in the image of God. They carry and bear some semblance of the image of God, but they do not represent the image of God. That is Jesus and him alone. How do we meet with Jesus Christ, the image of the invisible God, with whom God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him? I think Paul answers that in verse 20. How do we meet with this individual? How do we meet with Jesus? God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things. See, the meeting requires reconciliation. You don't just walk up. You don't just invite yourself into the presence of God. There's reconciliation The purpose of the fullness of God dwelling in Christ. That's why God was pleased. That's why Christ is the embodiment of God. The reconciliation was initiated by the offended party, by God himself, not by the offending party. And I sometimes wonder if I do my children a disservice when I teach my daughters that if you do something wrong, you must do something to make it right. I'm not saying we shouldn't teach our children that. Because that's what we should do. And elsewhere in the New Testament, if you're bringing your offering to the temple and you remember that a brother has something against you, leave your offering and go and be reconciled to your brother. Then come back and give your offering. We are commanded and mandated to go and be reconciled to people we know that we've offended. But in this case, it's the exact opposite of how we interact. With God, he didn't wait for us to initiate the reconciliation. One, because we didn't want to, and two, because we couldn't. Because the reconciliation that was required was by making peace. By making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Making peace is always a weird phrase for me? Because how do you make peace? You either have peace or you don't. And if you make peace, that usually implies there was no peace, there was a time of not peace in order to get that peace, which seems backwards if your goal is peace. How was there peace after, or after World War II? It was by there being a lot of not peace. Then there was peace. There was conflict. Peace always comes by defeating the enemy. And in this case, God initiates reconciliation by sending his son who represents and is God in fullness. And he goes to the cross and he defeats sin and death and the devil. That's the first enemy. That's the enemy that's defeated But then the neat part is that we who were enemies of God are not defeated. We are not destroyed along with the enemy. The enemy is destroyed and reconciliation is brought in and we have peace with God in Christ 
instead of being destroyed. Christ made peace through his blood shed on the cross. How do you meet with Jesus? How do you meet with the invisible God? How do you meet with the God who created the universe and holds the universe together? In the cross. At the cross. Because there, reconciliation was made. Because there, blood was shed for you and for me so that we might have peace with God. We meet with Jesus in the place where Jesus has set us free. Paul follows in verse 21. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. Meeting with Jesus is not just some abstract idea. Meeting with Jesus is not just only opening your Bible and reading a passage. Meeting with Jesus is recognizing what Jesus has done in creation, in sustaining, and in reconciliation. It's recognizing and seeing who he is as God of the universe. And it's actually meeting with him. Meeting with the person of Jesus Christ. If you were going to meet with somebody in Tim Hortons or Starbucks or whatever you drink, you actually sit down and you have a conversation with the person. You, you see them for who they are. You talk about what they did, what you've done. You talk about the things that you're going to do, the things that you hope to do. It's having a real conversation. And I wonder for how many of us, how, how many of us actually have that real conversation with Jesus? My wife does not count it as seeing me or meeting with me when I don't actually talk with her for more than five minutes in a day. Yesterday, that was the case. I was up, went to Heritage, I was at school all day, came back. I was late because I had to pick up some stuff at Shoppers, great. And she's tired, the girls are sick, everybody's tired, everybody goes to bed. And at the end of the day, did we, did we really meet together? Did we really have a conversation? That text that I sent while I was sitting in class doesn't really count. We didn't really meet together. So have you met with Jesus? For the first time, have you met with him? Have you recognized your sin and your need of a savior? Have you seen Jesus for who he is and what he has done? Have you done that? And then, dear church of Jesus Christ, do you continue to meet with him? Do you continue to spend time with him? Talking with him, telling him about your day, caring about the things that he cares about, telling him the things that worry you, the things that frustrate you, the things that you need help with. Do you spend time with Jesus Christ? 
In him all things were created. In him all things hold together. In him all of God dwells. And in him we have redemption. Through the blood of Jesus Christ, we have reconciliation made because of what he has done. If you want a fun thing to do this afternoon, you can, I'm pretty sure you can do this from Google if you wanted. Find the in him passages in the Bible. Find the things that in him God has done. Find the things that God is doing in him for your sake, for his glory, and for the edification and benefit of his church. He is doing many things in Jesus Christ. And just because Jesus Christ is always the answer does not mean we should roll our eyes and just kind of move on. Jesus is the answer for all of these things. Will you meet with him this week? Actually meet with him. Not, not just say a quick prayer at breakfast or before you go to bed. Will you actually meet with him? I've actually been, if I can confess this, I've been working through what does it mean to actually meet with Jesus? Because as part of my job, Sam's job, Steve's job as pastors, it's our job to do Bible things. It's our job to think and read. It's our job to pray and to care it's just our job. But, but more than just an academic thing, I want to, we want to actually meet with the person who makes all of this worth it. Will you meet with him this week? Somehow, some way, somewhere, will you meet with Jesus Christ? Because in him, we have been reconciled. I'm going to ask our musicians to come up and lead us in our closing song.